Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I am over the moon to share my conversation with Tony-nominated director Marsha Milgram Dodge. Marsha received Tony Award and Drama Desk Award nominations for the Broadway revival of Ragtime. National touring credits include TheaterWorks' Curious George and Susical, the South Korean musical Cookin, and Ragtime for Phoenix Entertainment. Regional directing credits include literally almost every theater in the country, like the Kennedy Center, the Muni, the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, Tuts, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, the Drury Lane Theater, the Cape Playhouse, the Cleveland Playhouse, the Maltz Jupiter Theater, the Denver Center, the Only Theater, the Sacramento Music Circus, Bay Street Theater, Riverside Theater, Pittsburgh Public Theater, among many others. She also appears in two episodes of Encore on Disney Plus as the director for Annie and Ragtime. If you haven't watched this show already, you must check it out. Marsha is incredible. Now, Marsha directed me in Death Trap at the Cape Playhouse last summer, which you're going to hear more about in a little bit, and it was so good to catch up with her and learn so much. We chat about the coronavirus pandemic and how entertainers are more valuable than ever in times of crisis. She reminds us that we are the ministers of entertainment and smiles. I love that. And that we got through World War II on Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies, and that's how we're going to bounce back from this. Marsha talks about how she moved to New York as a choreographer, how she navigated the transition to director-choreographer, and how she developed her directing aesthetic really by learning on the job. And of course, Marsha has tons of helpful hints about the audition room, like how it's important for us to remember that for every audition we have, we're really having four or five auditions all at once. Because you're also auditioning for all the shows the director has coming up, the casting director is casting, and all the other shows that the artistic director is producing. She says people are cast this way all the time. She also uses me as an example when talking about auditions, and spoiler alert, I didn't book the job. But she explains why, and I think it's a really important story to share. Marsha is one of the most accomplished directors working today with an incredible reputation. It was an honor to sit down and chat with her. So without further ado, my conversation with Tony nominee, Marsha Milgram Dodge. I am here, well, I'm not here, but I'm um, with uh, Marsha Milgram Dodge. Uh, we are doing this over the interwebs because we are at the time of social distancing. And I'm so happy um, to be just hanging out and uh, catching up with you. Thank you. Thank you. I was happy to be here in my little office space. This podcast is happening remotely as life is happening remotely. And we were just talking a little bit about that. And I, I don't know that, you know, I was just saying to Marsha, I don't know that going down the rabbit hole of like, you know, what our, what life is going to be like, we don't know what it's going to be like. And, you know, hopefully this time of isolation is just, is everything brief. Um, but I kind of want you to, can you just say what you said about that, about your students in 9-11? Sure. So, um, you know, we are a resilient group, theater people, actors and dancers and cre- uh, designers and directors and technicians and everybody who gathers together to collaborate and create theater. And the last crisis I went through was 9-11 and, and, 
that happened on a Tuesday, as I recall, and I was teaching at NYU, and we finally went back to class on Friday, and there were a few kids missing, and they lived in dorms downtown, so we were all freaking out a little bit. But by Friday, I believe everybody was found and gathered, and there were no casualties um, per se for us. So, but the kids were bereft; they were crying. They were. It was impossible for them to understand why they were singing and dancing when this was going on. And you know, I am a cheerleader, and I think that I rallied them by saying. We have to do what we do. We are the we are the ministers of of entertainment and smiles. We have to continue to do what we do. We are historically um, entertainers in times of uh, woe, just like we got through the depression with Fred and Ginger movies, and we got through World War II with you know uh, big MGM musicals. I mean, I think that we have to remember that. If, you know, if, we, if what we have are gifts, we're, it's, we're meant to share them. And, and I don't, and, and what we did was as a faculty, we gathered, we were in the process of um, two uh, productions at the time on the town was being done. And I'm not sure what I was working on at the time, but the on the town cast gathered on a flatbed truck and they went down to, you know, ground zero, parked in a safe zone and performed. And brought such cheer and joy to people who were devastated. I mean, beyond devastation was down there. So I believe that when we come back in any fashion that we come back, we need to be ready. So um, I just was invited to watch the Pace University concert of some seniors and also do a chat with some seniors at NYU. And, you know, they all want to know, what do we do now? We're graduating, but we have nothing to audition for. And and I said, find your tribe, stay connected, practice your craft, stay in touch with your teachers, keep getting tips on how to get better at what you do, because when the call comes, you need to be ready. You need to be really ready to go back to work and live ferociously under imaginary circumstances. That's what we do. We tell truth, but we're in an imaginary setting. And so you have to be really good at it. And so you'll be out competing again. This is temporary. I have to believe that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, the alternative is too horrifying to even consider. So we have to believe this is temporary. Things will change. The way we do things may change. Maybe we learn some things in this isolation time about hygiene and and boundaries. Maybe those are things that will inform choices that we make later. But I'm I'm not particularly interested in watching a socially distanced performance of something. I don't feel like that will be coming back. I think when we come back and we do Death Trap again, we wanna see him choke the life out of you. And we wanna do all the we wanna do all the touching and but I think, you know, in my, you know, my dream of what kind of theater I want to go see, I want to see romance. I want to see problems solved. I want to see results and I want to see human spirit lifted. So I think if you've been trained to do that, be ready to do it because you could get the call in July. You could get the call in September. 
You may not get the call till January of 2021, but you need to be ready. Those That's calls are going to come well. again for all of us. They're going to come. They're going to come. They have to come. I don't know how to do anything else. I have mm-hmm. to keep doing this. So I, I feel very hopeful amid you know moments of dread, but I keep pulling myself up with hope. And um, my hashtag right now is health, hope, love, peace. That's I love my- that. That's my signature right now. (laughs) I think that needs to be all of our signatures. (laughs) It's the way to to live. And I don't know. I was just thinking about, I've been thinking about reading acting books and stuff and, and always making and going for the positive choice first, you know, in acting and in scenes. And I think that that's something that's important that, you know, we can do in our lives right now is just trying to make that positive choice. Yeah. Because it's so easy to go negative. The last thing I ever want to see on stage is a pity party. Do you know what I mean? And whenever, whenever I see a, a character and an actor as a character, feeling sorry for themselves, I tune out. And mm-hmm. I think more than ever now, it's like, uh-uh, you're going to figure out your way out of the mud. You're going to try every tactic you can think of, but feeling sorry for yourself, not interested. We all do that ourselves. We don't mm-hmm. want to go to the theater and watch people feel sorry for themselves. We go to the theater to watch people struggle against all odds and get there and make mm-hmm. changes and make choices that are you know, going to get them out of the mud, not keep them in the mud. So that's what I'm looking forward to. And that's the kind of enthusiasm I want to see from the auditions that I go to once this is Mm -hmm. all over. I want to see hungry. I want that job. I want to see all that um, excitement and ferocity in in the work. Before all of this happened, um, you know, end of February, beginning of March, um, what was life like for you? Like, what were you, were you, were you in rehearsal? I don't, were you in rehearsal for anything? What were you working on? Like, where, where were you in your process for different things? It's, yeah, it's so interesting because um, I did a production of uh, Buddy, the Buddy Holly story at Cincinnati Playhouse and I came home on January 24th. That was my first job of the new year. And on January 24th, my husband and I started redecorating our apartment because our daughter had just moved for, she moved in September, but she was definitely not coming home. So I could take over her room, turn it into an office, guest room. And we started purging and cleaning and fixing up our apartment, getting new sofas and all this stuff. And then come, and then I was in pre-pro for like five projects, which I'm usually juggling at least, you know, five projects at the same time in various stages of development. And um, on March 11th, I was packing to go to Chicago to start rehearsals for Evita at the Drury Lane Theater. And that day was the last day I went out. I did an audition at Pearl Studios for Beauty and the Beast, uh, just seeing one actor. And then I came home. And then I started packing and I said to my husband, I don't want to go. I love our new apartment. It's so cute. I wish we could just stay home for a little while. <laughs> and then the next be careful day, what you wish for. careful what you wish for the next day as I was, our flight wasn't until five. So we were still lurking. I got a call from Jury Lane saying, hold, we may not be able to start right away. So we'll call you back later. We don't know what's going on, but the world's changing. 
And then later that afternoon, they said, they said, we'll rebook you for tomorrow. So they rebooked my flight for the 13th. And then by the end of the day of the 12th, you know, we were given the order to stay in and the show was going to have to be postponed. But they thought it was going to be postponed, you know, like maybe a few weeks or a month or so. And it was still lining up with all my subsequent projects. So it was all fine. And then obviously that all changed. So Avita got moved to next year. The next show after that is World Goes Round at Marriott Theater, which is now, I would be in rehearsal starting next week, but now that's on hold. It hasn't been officially postponed or canceled. I mean, it's officially postponed, but we don't know till when. And then, and where were you with World Goes Round? Like for each of these projects, like cast, ready to go, ready to start rehearsal. Mary, mm-hmm. uh, Marriott, we were all cast except for one. And I was supposed to see some people once I got to Chicago and I was in town. I was mm-hmm. going to go over and, and meet some more people once I was there. So between the stay at home order and Marriott finishing casting, we ended up casting the rest of it. Um, it was just one other role we cast locally. Um, mm-hmm. And then the artistic director cast some understudies. So that's all ready to go. Costumes, set design, everything. The only, the interesting thing was with World Goes Round, we had a beautiful, I'm, my, I conceived the show as kind of follies, like a reunion in a, in a dilapidated theater. And my designer, Chris Roten, did this amazing set. Um, but then once all these new wrinkles started to appear, we got a call saying, we're going to do World Goes Round on the Kiss Me Kate set. I understood it on the logical brain, but the creative brain was heartbroken. Yeah. But Chris and I were able to manipulate it somewhat to get some of our ideas in it. But if we go in a postponed manner, we will do World Goes Round on their Kiss Me Kate set with some modifications. So mm-hmm. that's the first kind of heartbreak with this. Like I understood it logically about postponing and even postponing a season, but I was like, no, I want to do the show we create. You know, I want to I want to do the right. design and everything. So that was that that's hard, but I made the adjustment. I'm a big girl and we, you know, turned it into a positive and and the good thing was the Kiss Me Kate set is kind of a backstage set. So it already had right. some elements of theater that we were looking at. Ours was a little grander. Um, but um, so we're working, we're still working on figuring that out. Uh-huh. After that, I'm supposed to go to the Muni to do Smokey Joe's Cafe. And then after that is Beauty and the Beast at the Olney. But that's not until October. Mm-hmm. So I'm busy. You know, I'm, I, I'm still engaged with these projects and Avita's ready to go. So hopefully by next spring, we'll be just putting up Avita with the same cast. I think that's about it. And then my, our Tony and I had written a play, Sherlock Holmes and the West End Horror. And our friend uh, Kirsten Wyatt was doing this stay at home project called Musicals from Home. And they were going to do Legally Blonde. Basically, it was their format is put the play online. Everybody grabs a scene. They neglected to call MTI to get the rights. So they (laughs) got a cease and desist. And this was very soon after the stay-at-home order because it was like the second week. It was like we were still in March. So I called my uh, licensor and said, I want to give Sherlock to this company. 
And he said, go ahead. So with no encumbrances whatsoever, I gave them the rights to the play and they did it. I want to back up a little bit. I run a mm-hmm. rewind to growing up and just briefly uh, how you, I know you were, um, started as a dancer choreographer and I just wanted to know briefly how, uh, maybe you started in choreography and then found directing and just kind of how you, uh, went into each sure. of those fields, because I think that there are early career directors listening, choreographers, maybe people who are looking to transition from a choreographer to a director, um, I just think that's interesting. And I also think it's interesting that your degree is in speech, speech communications and theater because yeah. they're with a, with a dance minor because, and I'm not, okay. I'm, you can find this online. I'm 65 as of yesterday. I just turned 65. Happy birthday. Thank you. So I went to school in the seventies and in the seventies in Ann Arbor, there was no musical theater program. There was acting and there was dance, but there wasn't this animal called musical theater. Musical theater was really only done outside of the academia. So I got there in 73. I was there till 77. And the first thing I did was I auditioned for a musical, Summer Rep. They also did a summer repertory season with one musical. And um, I had danced my whole youth in Detroit and in the suburbs. I took tap and jazz. I never took ballet. I did not like my fat thighs and pink tights. And I wouldn't go to class, so I stopped doing ballet. But I was a good hoofer, and I was really, I was a good jazz dancer. And then I got to Ann Arbor, and I auditioned for a musical, and I got in the chorus of The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd. And it was the summer of 73. And my sister Paula and I lived in an apartment together, and she took a couple classes, and I took a couple classes because I did really poorly on my SATs. And that's how I got into Michigan by applying to summer school. I don't even know if you can do that anymore. But I had the best time because I auditioned for this show. My sister, my older sister Carol, was playing the piano for the for the auditions, and I got in. And I was in the ensemble of Roar of the Grease Paint. I was the yellow urchin, and I was the big mouth in the chorus. I one day the choreographer wasn't there, and we were working on a number, and the director looked at me and said, "Why don't you do it?" Oh wow! And I was like. Okay, because I was the girl that would always go, excuse me, you just told us to, to, to end on our right foot and then the next step starts on our right foot. So we either need a catch step or a weight shift or something. Like right. I, was that, I was that annoying girl in the chorus. So he gave me this opportunity and I staged some sequence and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and then I spent the next four years figuring out how to do that. So I would choreograph anything I could get my hands on. When I was a sophomore, I joined Soft Show. When I was a junior, when I was a senior, I directed Musket and choreographed. And I even pulled Tony into it. We met doing a kind of a co-pro with um, an outside producer and a student organization. And we actually got to run our show for two weekends instead of one. And it was like... Wow. Plus, I fell in love with Tony Dodge, and he was my King Arthur and Camelot. And so it was all, like, very heady and emotional and exciting, and I found my passion doing that. And then I we came to New York, and 
uh, got an apartment together and we were waiting tables and I was reading backstage. And anytime I saw something that said choreographer TBD, I would send my resume and call them and try to get jobs that way. And we ended up starting work doing summer stock. And then I walked into SDC and said, I want to join the union. Did you know I, I could, I could just walk in there and join. Did you know that you wanted to direct as well as choreograph? That no, point? I just wanted to choreograph. My idols were Jerome Robbins and Bob Fosse and Pat Birch and Danny Daniels. And I wrote them letters when I was in college. And when I was a sophomore, I was choreographing Godspell for Soft Show. And my phone rang and I answered the phone and I heard, Hello, Marsha. This is Bob Fosse. You wrote me so many questions. I thought I'd have to call you just to give you all the answers. And I went, yeah, right. Sure, it's Bob Fosse. I thought it was my friend Greg. And he goes, you wrote me this letter, and I, and this is your number, right? You're in Ann Arbor. And I was like, oh, my God. And I, like, slithered down to the floor and sat on the phone talking to Bob Fosse for, like, a half hour. I was like, what the fuck? And then I went to opening night and I went, guess who I just talked to? And of course, nobody believed me. There were no answering machines and voicemails. Right. And, but it's my memory. And he we talked about everything. I told him I learned steam heat when I was a kid. And I was so naive. I like sent him a picture of me. Like my family did some pictures for my parents' anniversary. And I was like standing by a tree. And I was like, <laughs> I sent him that picture. Anyway, so yeah, that was my brush with greatness with Fosse. I just knew I wanted to do that. I wanted to choreograph. You know, there wasn't YouTube and there wasn't all, I had to, I did it from, you know, certain limited technique that I had from taking dance classes. But when I got to Ann Arbor, I took modern and I learned different vocabs and different movement styles. And my teachers were really nice to me. They would give me independent studies for shows that I choreographed. So I managed to keep a good grade point, even though I wasn't a great academic student. So I just wanted to come to New York and choreograph. That's what I wanted to do. And then when did directing enter the picture? So I was doing a big musical with Des Mackinoff at La Jolla Playhouse, and we were doing um, Elmer Gantry which was an adaptation of a Sinclair Lewis novel. There is a film. We were adapting the novel, which is complicated and not as fun. Um, and it was a mess. It was, you know, it was okay. It was good. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And while I was there, I got a call from Carl Mueller, who was running Virginia Stage at the time, briefly before he started working for, uh, he, for he was an agent after that. And he uh, called me and said, we're going to do Ain't Misbehavin'. Do you want to direct and choreograph? And I was wow. like, yeah, I want to do that. So I rounded up my favorite designers who were um, Jimmy Noon, who's you know, a set designer, and, and um, uh, Michael Crass, who just was nominated for Tony for Hadestown, and um, Ken Posner, who's one of the most, you know, phenomenal Broadway lighting designers there is and they were we all sort of came up you know together at the same time and I called them and said let's do this and and that's when I really figured out 
my sort of directing gestalt because I said, I'm not, I love the original production. I love, love, loved it. My friend from college, Eric Riley was um, Andre DeShield's understudy. And I saw the show many, many times. And I even saw it at Manhattan Theater Club before it moved to Broadway. And I said, I want to find my own way in. So that's where I discovered that I had this research. I jonesed on research. I was like, I got, I got high off of research. And I started reading about um, uh, George Gershwin going up to rent parties in Harlem to kind of steal rhythm and music from Harlem musicians. And I thought, all right, I'm going to do a rent party and we're going to open it up. We're going to, this is crazy. We're going to cast, I want to cast a Latinx at the time, Hispanic. I want to cast the the Viper as a Latin guy. And I want to cast the woman who plays Charlene. I want to make her Asian. Like I want to open up the, the race, uh, Mm -hmm card for this show I feel like it was a melting pot people came it was safe and and my music director um, Abdul Hamid Royal he was on board with me with this he's African-American and we were like we're gonna really find a cultural context for this show and that production ended up basically taking care of Tony and me for almost 10 years I did it in several regional theaters and that's what launched my directing tony was my big supporter tony was like you're a director and i'm like i don't know i like collaborating i like being i like getting ideas and taking them and hearing the director say something and going with that idea but ain't misbehaving was the real turning point for me um i think in that regard um it's important uh, it's something I don't think about as an actor, but the more, you know, associate uh, that I dip my tone to the water of doing more directing. And uh, I just directed my first, uh, you know, equity show. And I know. So I'm, um, the more I do it, the more I think like directors also have to, I'm doing quotes, mm-hmm. audition for jobs, just like actors. Absolutely. Just like actors do, you know, directors also are, being given these opportunities by producers or artistic directors. Mm-hmm. So I, and I know there's, you know, hundreds of different ways that, that, that happens, you know, it's not one way. It's just like an actor, you can get a job from knowing someone or from an audition or, you know, but, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how directors or how you get work. What I've always said, and I've been a professional director and choreographer for 40 years, my full-time job is looking for work. Mm -hmm. That is my full-time job, and it never stops. Even when, when when I book and I know that I don't have to look for a job for six months, once those jobs are over, I gotta look for another job. So the constant, I have to constantly be putting myself out there and making myself available and interested and throw my hat in the ring. So I am, I am a pretty, uh, some people might say coarse. I like to say, uh, effervescent, (laughs) but if I've, if there's a theater I want to work at, if there's a director, artistic director that I respect and I want to work at their theater, I, I start calling. 
I reach out. I start with emails and say, I would love to work with you. I love what you're doing at your theater. And, and I'm not lying. And, but there's mm-hmm. also a mission to my, to my approach because I want to, I want to be that one who worked at almost, I've worked at almost every major regional theater in this country. Mm-hmm. And I rarely does a, does the phone ring and say, hi, would you like to come work with us? It's happened a few times. It's happened. It happened with Michael at the mm-hmm. Cape. Um, but it, it happens less often than me reaching out and saying, I would really like to work with you. Let's have a chat. Let's see what we're simpatico on in terms of, uh, ideas, titles, let's kick things around. Um, and you know, when I work somewhere and an artistic director retires, then I have to start all over again with that new artistic director. Mm-hmm. And that's happened a lot in my career because I've been working for so long. But never have I ever left a theater knowing I had a job with them the right. next, you know, that moment I leave. So it's a constant balancing of making sure the artistic director's you know, appreciate you, but that you don't become too needy. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. and I'm, uh, you know, and I'm in an age bracket now where it may not be as sexy to hire somebody like me as it is to hire somebody just coming out of Yale with all sorts of references from fancy people. Like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I know the hustle is ongoing. I enjoy it to a certain degree because I know how I feel when I get a job. But my favorite, my favorite is uh, my friend Andrew Andrew Cato, who runs Malt's Jupiter Theater. I had lots of friends who were working down there, and I just saw that they were casting on Chelsea Studios' board one day. And I literally like waited until this person walked out and peeked my head in and said, "Is are you Andrew Cato?" And I walked in and I said, "I'm Marsha Mogram Dodge, and I would love to work for you." And he tells that story every time I, I work there. He's like, she walked in and said, I'm Marsha Mogram Dodge and I want to work for you. And you know what? We then, he was in town for a few days. We had breakfast. He told me what his season was. He had obviously knew me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had breakfast with him. Um, he vetted me. And it was before ragtime. We did master class. And because of ragtime, Terrence McNally and Tom Curdy came to, to see Masterclass. And, oh, wow. Yeah. So it proved to be a very good timing. And so much of what we do depends on timing. Absolutely. You can audition for somebody six times, leave and say, they're never going to hire me. They hate me. I don't know why I keep going in for this person. But that sixth time was it. They just saw something in you and you got it. And there's a wonderful actress that I um, met in an audition who wasn't right for the show we were doing at the time, but then came back three or four years later and was perfect for something I was doing. And I was so happy because I remembered her. And I remembered that she was so skilled and so talented, but it was just a dynamic. It was, I was casting a pair of sisters and it just wasn't the right fit. But then when this other project came along and I saw her name on the sheet, you know, it was kismet. It was like, bam, that's your part. That's what got us in the room together. You know? Is that actress a friend of mine? Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, she Can we shall... say her name? 
Yeah, let's say her name. Amy, Amy. Blackman. Yeah. yeah. So Amy came in for uh, Sense and Sensibility, the musical, and I loved her. I thought she was really interesting, but she's got a maturity about her. So she was in the cracks for playing like an 18-year-old. She, you know, she seemed too young to play the mom and a little too mature to sit, to play the daughters. But I remembered her and Stephen Copel was casting that for me. And he brought in really great people. And, and I remembered her. And then I was casting Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And she walked in and I was like, I found the mother. Like she was perfect. And she wasn't that much older than the boy, you know, the young man playing Christopher. In fact, yeah. I think they were really close in age, but he happens to be a, a small man and she wears her beautiful maturity and and um, her sexuality and her, and her so warmth. Grounded and, so grounded yeah. and beautiful. Plus, she's authentically English. So it just mm-hmm. was a really good fit. And I was so happy to to be able to cast her, enthusiastically cast her, like first choice cast her. Um, I actually ran into Amy when I was either going to Cincinnati or coming back from Cincinnati. We just had a big hug in the airport uh, a couple months ago, and we just communicated the other day. And she's like, I want another hug in the airport. And I was like, yeah, me too. So, yeah, but that was exciting. So I would say, you know, for actors – you may, you know, think you nailed it and you don't get the part. There's just so much that goes into the casting of a role. It's uh, just always remember this, too, that we want you to be it. I mm-hmm. want you to be it. I want, I want to, I want you, I'm rooting for you. Mm-hmm. Don't ever think we're sitting behind the table and we're stuck on our phones and we're not paying attention. Yeah, that happens. You know, unfortunately, we're in this tethered telephone age. But honestly, when you walk in there, I want you to be it. So I will give you all my energy to help you achieve that. Yeah. And it's it's a long game. You know, it's, it is it's a, a long marathon. Game. It's not a sprint. So it is. I, yes. I mean, I tell myself that because, you know, as an actor, you know, I mean, you just spend so long on an audition. You know, you can spend a week preparing for an audition I and then know. you go in and but you but I always think it's a success if I leave feeling like I know that it was a good audition and if it was good work and then you're making an impression you're making an impression on the director and, and it's a small world. That director is going to be directing something that you're auditioning for very shortly. And you're auditioning for the casting director who could be bringing, you know, you in for something. And the artist director, artistic directors casting five to seven shows. Right. So right. you may walk in because you were selected to audition for one show and the casting director and or the artistic director could decide, huh, now that I've seen this person, maybe they're right for this other show. Mm-hmm. So if you're going in for one show in a seven show season, you need to understand you're being viewed for all seven shows. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. do the focused work on the audition that you're preparing, but know that you could get a call the next day that we want you to come in for a different role or which may be in your eyes a demotion or a promotion, who knows. I think mm-hmm. a role is a role. There's no role. A job is a job. A job yeah. a job. Or they may say, "You know what? We we uh we want to bring you back for this other show." Yeah. And that's happened. 
that's happened. I think that's happened uh, frequently, more frequently than not. I wonder if you can articulate, say it's an initial audition, because then I want to talk about a callback, but an initial audition, what makes an actor pop or really like come through for you? I mean, what brings, like what connects you to that actor? And I guess maybe tied to that is a little bit of what do you consider preparation for an initial audition for an actor? I think you have to think of it as a rehearsed performance. So, and I don't think you should put the paper down and come in memorized. I know that's very, that's the way it is in television. But I think in theater, when you start and then you flub a line, I get annoyed. So I'd rather have you hold the page and never look at it than go up and think you have this whole thing memorized. That's one thing. It's an unmemorized rehearsed performance. I'm not saying come, coming in, mem- if you're like phenomenal at memorization, great. Just hold that piece of paper. It makes me nervous if you don't. The other thing is make choices. Live as authentically in the character, the choices that you make about that character. They're, you know, And I use Uta Hagen's six steps. That's the, that's the guide for a, what I call a cold reading. Although cold readings are never cold right? Mm -hmm. Even if somebody says, hey, could you take a look at this scene? They're not expecting you to read it cold. They're expecting you to go out, Mm -hmm. give it some thought, and you have to have those kind of tools to make quick choices and scribble all over that page and figure out what you're doing. But my feeling is if you come in and it feels like you're just reading and you're not making choices and investing any kind of specificity to your choices, then I'm not interested. But if you come in and make wildly, you know, creative, original choices that I haven't even thought of, I'm interested. And it doesn't mean I want you making, you know, off the wall choices. It just means I want you to make really big choices that you can live in eight shows a week and be truthful. So can I use you as an example? Yeah, Robbie. Please. For your for the listeners, so Robbie and I did uh, Death Trap last summer, and it was so, we had so much fun. We just had so much fun, and and I said I would have cast you based on just vetting you and just sort of looking around online, but you insisted on auditioning, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so did Michael. So we, I said, sure, great. So you did. Uh, I picked a couple scenes. It's hard in Death Trap because it's, but the character does. Do is while is two people. He's definitely a Gemini, right? He's mm-hmm. he's got two very distinct personalities. So it was very apparent, you know, looking at a video that I thought Robbie had the chops to do this role. And then I find out he's even better, which is what you want when you get in the room and start working. You're like, oh, you got some really good choices going on there. I hadn't even considered that. So that's exciting. And then mm-hmm. cut to this summer, and we're casting. Um, uh, murder on the orient express right Mm -hmm. and i'm like let's put robbie in the play i love robbie and then i'm like trying to figure out what part you'd be right for Mm -hmm. and it didn't quite fit right Mm -hmm. it just and we brought you in for our bot not and you know he's supposed to be probably in his 40s and you know, and he's been. I understand very, very you know? much. Yeah. And you came in and you did a very respectable audition for that role, 
but you weren't right. It wasn't a right fit. It just wasn't, it just wasn't a right fit. And I don't, and it doesn't mean I don't love you as an actor. It's just that for my production and the dynamics of all the people in this particular fabric, it wasn't the right threat. You know, it just wasn't the right fit. It doesn't Mm -hmm. diminish anything. I mean, Robbie asked me to come do the podcast, so he's not mad at me for not casting him. <laughs> but you also have another role at the theater, so it's not like I'm not going to see you and and you know, be part you'll be part of it. But Yeah. You know, but that's how it works. Sometimes it's a really great fit and sometimes it's a really wonderful actor and not a great fit. Yeah. But that's why it's the long game. I love that you called it that. I've never really thought of it that way. Oh, you know, yeah. like why is a team excellent one summer and not excellent, you know, the next year. And it's that, you know, there's variables Mm -hmm. and the variables from my perspective are putting the DNA of a company together and Mm -hmm. making sure all those notes are being met that are required by the text. Because what makes a production work or not is so small and getting all of that to line up like you said the dna we've all been a part of shows where it's the most wonderful thing and it works incredible and then we've all been a part of those shows where like just something doesn't click and it just uh, like whether it's a person or a design or and it just kind of the whole thing falls apart you know not just that element so it's it's really about making sure it's a curated you know, a curator. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in I've been lucky in creating families, like groups of people who come together to do a show with me, and then I find out they're having reunions at the bar and they're doing, you know, they're getting together and there's like, you know, they've become really good friends and they have like a private Facebook page and they stay in touch. And I like to think that those are the beautiful um perks and and benefits of what we do because you know all you need is one bad apple in there and it ruins it Mm. for everybody and i've been in situations like that too um so what i really do now because i think it's important is i vet people as people Mm -hmm. like i can tell from your resume i'll give you i'll give you an example like if i see a resume that says this theater, one show, this theater, one show, this theater, one show, some, you know, three different theaters, one show each, and then some other stuff. But I never see that they've done more than one show at a theater. Mm-hmm. I think, ah, oh, maybe that was a one-off. Yeah. You know, maybe there's something about that person that they weren't really interested in having that person back. But when right. I see a resume that says, Cleveland Playhouse, this show and this show, Repertory Theater of St. Louis, three shows, mm-hmm. Maltz Jupiter Theater, two shows. I go, oh, this is a this is a team player. This is somebody that theaters like having. Mm-hmm. And if it is a one, and if it is one, 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 I'll call the artistic director or the director of that particular play or musical and say, tell me about this person. They're very talented. I don't need to know that. I need to know about mm-hmm. the behavior, the room. So I do that now. I do it. I think it's important because I just don't want any, I don't want any bad apples in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In my conversation um, that you can also listen to on my podcast with Jeff, 
Oh. Jocelyn, he said, um, you know, your reputation is huge in castability. Yeah. Um, you know, when, and that's the next thing I kind of wanted to ask is, you know, when it gets down to, you know, two actors for a role or three actors, you know, and those three actors, those two actors are wonderful. Um, you know, how does, what are the conversations that take place that kind of pull one person ahead of the other person? Do well, you find I, that it's, that artistic directors largely let you, that you make that decision or is it a collaboration? Uh, I mean, like, I'm sure it's different for every, every theater, but I just wonder if there's an, if there is an answer for that. It's terribly subjective. Mm-hmm. Sometimes choices are made uh, emotionally as opposed to rationally. And I'm not saying that that's not valid, but sometimes that happens. Um, generally, there's a decided front runner. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's, if, if, if I've ever had to sort of duke it out with an artistic director about a particular mm-hmm. actor casting a role. Um, I think it generally there's a feeling in the room when it's right. Like mm-hmm. everybody goes, ah, I think we got him. I think we found him. Um, that, was, you know, that makes sense. You know, and I think that because diversity and inclusion is prominent in my heart right now for casting that I may be leaning into making choices that make the make the the some of its part more inclusive and more diverse Mm -hmm. does that mean a white actor might have been better for a role and I gave it to a man of color that could be Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I might be guilty of that. Well, you're also creating a, a world on stage yeah. that needs to reflect the world. The world we're in. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's, well, I don't want, I mean, with respect to my colleagues and however they perceive how that is accomplished, um, I will, I will always, if I'm unsure, I go back to their first audition rather than the callback. Okay. It's like in Chopped when they're after the dessert round, they go back and they evaluate the appetizer and the main course. Because, yeah. you know, I put myself in my audience's shoes or butts rather. And I think, okay, how did I feel the first time I saw that person? So That's maybe huge. they don't do great at the callback. But when we're going down to like casting the roles, I go, yeah, but you guys, we gave him a callback because we loved him at his first audition. Mm-hmm. And I know that callbacks change your chemistry. 100%. Callbacks change your chemistry because you think, ah, I just have to nail this and I have the job. Like the callback gives you some sense of relief but adds an element of anxiety because it's now the pressure. Like you go to the first audition and you're like, whatever happens, I'm just going to go in there and audition, do my best. If they like me, great. If they don't like me, fuck them, right? That's what. Mm-hmm. That's like the first audition. Yeah. But when you do the callback, it's like, they like me. I better not fuck this up. I want this job. And, you know, and now you, 
And that we see that on you. We can sense that on you, that little bit of desperation or that little bit of, you know, added anxiety. And so honestly, I go back to the first audition sometimes and I think I loved that. And that's what we'll get. I know we'll get that. And I know I can get that. And I know that's good for the complete casting of this project. So for a callback, you know, a, would do you think that actors should make the same choices and try to present the same audition that they had that the first time that got them the callback? Or do you want someone to go home, marinate, make new choices, come in with something a little different? You know, obviously, if you gave them direction in the room on the first audition, you know, they're probably going to come in maybe focused a little bit more on that. I, I'm one of those people that, you know, going into the callback, you're always like, do I do the same thing? Do I wear the same thing? Do they want me to grow? You know, what would you say to Well, actors? hopefully your callback material is different. If it's not, then yeah, I would say, A, wear the same thing. And especially mm-hmm. in musicals, because I can't remember anybody when they change after a dance call and then they sing. I'm like, oi, who is that? So wear the same thing. The other thing is, if, the, if it's the same scene again, you can say... What would you like? Would you like, do you want a different dialect? Do you want something different? Mm-hmm. Like depending on what the, what the scene requires. But I would say make more meaningful choices. Go in there and let me know that you did some homework on it. Mm-hmm. That you didn't just come back and you're just p- pressing replay and you're just doing the same thing again. Mm-hmm. I think you want to, I think I want to know that you've um, made, you know, made new discoveries and informed some choices a little bit more deeper, mm-hmm. more deeply, you know. That's really helpful. Yeah. The last thing that I just wanted to ask is we talked earlier about you also being a writer and you're, mm. you're already, you already are doing two things in the business by being a choreographer director, which is why it was so exciting for me to talk to you and why I wanted to, but I also love that you're a writer and I think, I just wonder how that experience has been for you. Um, I, I like doing more than one thing. Obviously, I'm doing this podcast. I'm an actor. Yeah. I'm doing going into directing. But how important do you think it is for people to have, you know, to do something else within the industry? And also, the other part of that is, you know, how has that been? Have people praised you for it? Has it been difficult to do more than one thing? You know, mm. to be a multi, you know, to have different, yeah interests sometimes can peg you, you know, like, oh, you're a this, so you can't be a this, you know, so it's harder. I feel like maybe today, the more we like modernize, the more everyone kind of does many different things. So it's more accepted. But I just wonder how that's been, how that's been for you. you. Well, I would say uh, the writing is uh, in in partnership with my husband. So Mm -hmm. I like to say that he's the writer and I'm the typist. So it's not that I don't contribute to the to the to the dramatic structure and but when we wrote for example when we wrote Sherlock that was a team effort like he oh. did the heavy lifting on on writing but we were adapting a novel so I was at the keyboard he was he was an actor so a lot of it was that he acted out some stuff and then mm-hmm. I would say I know exactly how to stage it and then I would write the stage direction so it was so it was a really a team effort Mm -hmm. Um, uh, when we worked on Hats the Musical, 
we, we, again, I, I was more structure based and he was more nitty gritty details, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So I, I always think the writing is, um, only the writing that I've done has been with Tony and I, and, and the way it helps me as a director is it helps my dramaturgical skills. Although I never studied playwriting. I mean, I've learned on the job, really. My whole directing and choreography career has been on the job training and, Mm -hmm. and grabbing from really smart people that I get to work with um, Mm -hmm. and trying to think like they would think. Like sometimes I'll find myself if we're writing something, go like, what would Terrence McNally do here? You know, like what mm. would a really great writer do here? So, but the choreography and direction, the only downside for me has been that once I started directing, nobody hired me to choreograph anymore. Only one director hired me, Leland Ball out at Music Circus. But, at, but other than Leland, no one hired me to choreograph. And my I've invented the reason, which is I don't think directors want other directors in the room. I think they want to be the only director in the room. And so when you get me, you get both. Whether I'm doing both jobs or not, you get both. So like a a play like Curious Incident of of the Dog in the Nighttime, even though they didn't budget for a choreographer. They got a choreographer, <laughs> but even mm-hmm. death trap, you got me, you got a choreographer in the room all the time yeah. working on a play. And my friend Mark Shanahan teased me one time and said, Oh, when you work with Marsha, it's talk, talk, kick turn because I do <laughs> very physical staging. Like I, I mean, we put a ballet in death trap, didn't we? I mean, yes. whole desk ballet was choreography but it was you know intentional behavior and movement but well and the moment yeah you get both you get both with this you know it's it's just the way it is one day you told me say this and then spin oh and then i and then i spun and then we worked on say the line sit down feet on the chair and every night I got applause after that monologue because the moment was so buttoned, you know, it was yeah. just so, yeah. so it was. Well, it had rhythm. Actor. It had musicality, even without music underneath it. It had a bill, mm-hmm. it had a crescendo and it had a release and it had a button. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, and I like doing melodrama and I like doing mysteries and I like doing farce because those forms of, plays allow for that kind of physical behavior and and musicality like you said yeah yeah i mean it's fun i mean i was like yeah give me death trap i know you know i was like i know and then also that came because of you and the way you were doing the monologue it was like it led me to those choices so i would say Mm -hmm. that was a that was really good collaboration Mm -hmm. too you know oh i'm glad i got you applause that's fun Oh, please, that's really fun, right? Oh, yeah. that was laughs fun. And claps, yeah. <laughs> that's what I like. That's what I look for. Laughs and I, claps and making grown men cry. That's my other big goal in life. Yeah. I hate the directors go away after the first performance because so much. Because it congeals and it gets yeah yeah it gets better. Especially when it's a quick rehearsal process. I know it's so quick. It's kind of amazing what we do in in the limited amount of time that we're given. It's yeah, 
But that's what I'm saying. That's why I need to see actors making really good choices at auditions. Because if you're coming to audition, if you're auditioning for a play that I'm going to direct in two weeks and I got to pull it out of you, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. You can make wild choices that I don't agree with, but if they're interesting, I'll be interested. You know what I mean? And then I'll give you an adjustment and say, hey, what if you did this instead of that? Or tell me a little bit about, you know, why you made that choice. And, you know, so I just think that I got to see it in the audition that I'm working with somebody that's quick and that can that can be interesting in, in making choices, you know, because that's what mm-hmm. you do as actors. Right. That's mm-hmm. your that's your toolbox. Yeah. This choice isn't working great. Make a new one. Mm-hmm. You're never locked in until the director goes, aha, that's right. it. Keep working on that. That's a yep. good one. Uh, well, that was, we had fun together and I had fun doing this today with you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!